You're listening to the ModernDogTrainer.net podcast, bringing you the best industry tips and topics for professional dog trainers worldwide. Hi there, you're listening to the Modern Dog Trainer podcast. I'm Ines McNeil, founder of the Modern Dog Trainer blog and podcast, and today I'm chatting with Kat Camplin, my co-host, and Rachel Golub. And Rachel has a animal training facility in San Diego with her husband, and this is her second time on the show. Before we get too much further, don't forget to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Modern Trainer and on Facebook. All the links are in the show notes at themoderndogtrainer.net. So put your feed up, grab something to drink, and let's get started. Awesome. So welcome, Rachel. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for having me again. So um, I'm Rachel Golub. I'm a certified dog behavior consultant and a certified professional dog trainer. Um, I Like you said, we have a facility here in San Diego County, um, although we are out in the boonies, not by the beach. Um, and I run it with my husband, who's also an animal trainer, uh, and we have two kids. So who does... Yeah, who, a lot of stuff. Who, who, what's, what's harder to train, animals or kids? Kids. Okay. Yeah, love it. Anything that can communicate back with you makes things a little bit difficult. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so there are some really great trainers doing board and train. And um, I know you guys do that down there. And a, a few of people have come forward recently, like, how do you do board and train from your house? Can I just add a puppy to the house um, and, you know, charge people to do it and then send them away? I think it's a little bit more difficult or complicated than just saying, Hey, bring your dog over to my house and let me train it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, yes and no, it depends on your setup. Um, so we offer two options. We have an actual facility. So we have a boarding area that's separate from our home, um, where we take, you know, just regular boarding clients, uh, usually dogs that are, seeing us for training in another way. So I go to their home and I do training there, but their dog has some complex issues that doesn't allow them to be boarded in traditional facilities. Either they're reactive to dogs or they're fearful of people. Um, so they come to our place where we're on 30 acres. There's no people coming really and going. There's other dogs, but they're controlled. Um, so we have boarding for that kind of stuff. Um, and then we offer board and train as well for select clients. So if they have a dog that has just some reactivity issues with other dogs, we can do board and train using the outside facility. Um, and then we do also occasionally have dogs where they're like puppies or things like that, where I can bring them into my home because they don't have any other issues. But those are kind of the rare cases. Um, I prefer usually to keep things separate um, so that one, my own dogs aren't getting stressed and right. two, my kids aren't interfering with me. <laughs> um, right. But like, you know what? I recently had a, an English bulldog board with us and they had grand, the family that had him had grandkids and they were worried about him jumping up on their grandkids. So that was kind of the perfect situation to bring the dog into the home so that we could practice using my kids in safe ways. Of course, I'm not like a free for all with children and kids running. Um, everything is always very controlled. Um, but that's kind of a, a, a scenario where it was kind of perfect to bring the dog into the house. It was super social with other dogs. My dogs love the company of other dogs so that's not an issue either um, but it definitely depends on what the client's goals are um, and that's of course incredibly important to establish before you even agree to take the dog on right. um, and then also understanding your own family dynamic your own dog's issues and how bringing another dog in is going to affect that um, right. so there's kind of like the whole picture that has to happen before you agree to do that kind of stuff got it 
So, you know, one of the questions I always had about board and trained for puppies is that like everything is behavior is so environmental, right? So how are we able to potty train in a completely different house where the doorways and the yards are completely different and have that transition effectively to uh, the owner's home? Uh, the doorbell sound different, you know, to me, like the environment is so important. How do you sort of uh, balance all of that between the training versus the environment when you're doing board and train? Yeah, that's, I mean, the, the golden question is always, you know, how to generalize the new or the learned behaviors to new environments. Um, I think that's the kind of the case with all training. You know, if, if you only train in your house, your dog's only going to listen in the house. If you only train at the pet store, your dog's only going to, you know, listen in the pet store. Um, so what we do, especially for puppies with the potty training is, of course, you're going to put pottying on cue um, and then kind of have them go in not the same location every time. So I take them out the front door sometimes, I'll take them out the back door another time, um, you know, I'll take them into a training yard, you know, things like that. When I can say go potty, they go on cue, I can give them a treat. Um, more severe behavior is definitely harder to generalize. Um, and owner compliance, as always, is definitely the difficult part in that as well, because you right. can tell them until you're blue in the face, like, <laughs> I did all of the work here. But if you don't follow up and do maintenance on these behaviors in your home, it's not going to keep up. Um, there's always going to be a backslide too, where there's, you know, the dog is doing great here and then they go back to the home and they're going to kind of slide back on some of the behaviors a bit before they get back to where they were when they were here. Right. So that's, you know, generalizing is always the hardest part. We try to, um, if it's a case of puppies, we try to take them to a bunch of new locations after they've had their shots and all of that good stuff to make sure that we're training in different environments and it's not the same place. Right. Have my husband do some of the training so it's not just me um, even the kids will have their own treat pouches and they'll kind of do sits and downs with the dogs so that they get used to not cool. listening to just one person because that's also the other hard part is right you know the dog will do great for me because I have a specific timing and a way of talking to the dog and we have kind of a connection but then when I hand the dog off to the owners um, I hate using that word pet parents is better but um <laughs> You guys understand the semantics. Um, but yeah, when I hand them off, it, it's always hard to get that to transfer. And I have to, you know, definitely coach the pet parents on this is what we did. This is why you need to speak this way. This is why your timing needs to be good. And there has to be an element of the coaching with the people still, even though you're doing the bulk of the work yourself. Definitely. Cool. How do you set that expectation up? beforehand because I think a lot of people when they want to do a board and train they just you know they want somebody else to do all the work so how do you kind of balance that expectation um honesty <laughs> that's uh my go-to for everything because you can't it's hard for trainers because we want to sell ourselves and we want to sell our service that we kind of want to be like oh you know I can do all these magical wonderful things um, but it's also important to set those realistic expectations of, you know, I'm not a magic fix person. I'm not going to come and just fix all your dog's problems. And then I hand off the dog to you and, you know, everything's done. Um, I tell them, you know, that behaviors don't always generalize. There's going to be some backsliding. Um, and as long as they're aware of those issues and proactive about it and on board in the beginning where I can say, I'm going to do this much work and these are going to be our goals. But if I hand that dog off to you and you don't continue working on it, the dog is going to go right back to where they were. Um, and I think having that honesty and telling them, you know, setting them up to succeed right away of, 
I can do this much, but you also have this part in it as well, um, kind of helps set everyone's expectations realistically. But there's always still going to be the person that you can tell them, you know, a hundred times, like you need to do this work once the dog is back in the house. And if they don't do it or they, they say that they understand, but then don't fully understand once the dog's back. Um, that's always the difficult part. But I think honesty, you know, establishing those goals in the beginning of like, this is what we want the dog to do. This is how realistic these goals are. Um, and this is what you're going to need to do when the dog comes back kind of helps with that. Definitely. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so one of the other topics I wanted to talk about today is taking on aggression clients, basically. And I, I know that that's kind of your specialty. And um, so I wanted to get some, some thoughts from you on, on when, you know, you have time or when you're qualified to take on clients like that um, and when you're not. So what are some signs you should look for early on in a client that would indicate that you should refer out um, I think personal comfort level is really important. Um, you know, the, the kind of verbiage that we, everyone always says is, you know, if, if you're afraid the dog's going to pick up on that fear, um, and there is some truth to that to a degree because dogs read our body language. And if our shoulders are super high and we're not breathing relaxed, the dog's going to pick up on that, you know? Um, so if you are uncomfortable with the dog, if you are even the slightest bit nervous around the dog, I think that's kind of a red flag right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I first started taking on severe aggression in homes because I used to work in a shelter environment and that's a little bit different because there's a lot of safety measures already in place. Um, In a home environment, you're kind of, you need to be the authority there. And if the pet parent isn't confident and you're not confident, no one's going to make progress. Um, So you kind of need to come into that picture being like, yes, I know what I'm doing. Yes, I can handle that because your confidence reassures the pet parent and the dog. So I think personal comfort level is, is the first thing that I pay attention to. Um, I, I have had a couple of clients where they went through another trainer first before calling me. Um, and they say, you know, I, I really liked the trainer, but I could tell that she was uncomfortable with my dog and that made my dog more sensitive. Mm. Um, and you know, it's a lot of projection. Of course, they're reading into body things and it's their own comfort level usually, but that's something I think that needs to be taken into account is your comfort level. Um, if there's a dog, like there's very few dogs I've referred out. Um, usually it's like, uh, idiopathic aggression, like the spaniel rage syndrome type stuff. Um, I refer those out usually to veterinary behaviorists because that's something that's out of my skill set. That's something that's chemical that I can't really fix, um, or work on. So there's certain cases like that where I refer out because it's not my comfort level. I know that that's not my specialty. That's not what I have my training in. Um, So I have no problem referring those out. What's difficult, I think, for some trainers is understanding that the dog doesn't have a bite history yet, but the potential is so high um, that it's better just to refer it out to someone else just in case. So, I mean, uh, reactivity is something that's super common now. Uh, I think it's always kind of been common, but it's been more uh, publicized, I guess, now. Um, So a lot of novice dog trainers are taking on reactivity because it looks just like, you know, pulling on leash and some barking. But there might be some elements of aggression that can come up further down the line if it's not addressed now. Um, So I think that's kind of where it's hard because the line gets blurred between reactivity and aggression. Um, 
And that's kind of the always the hard part in deciding and do I have the skill set for this or should I refer it out? Definitely. That makes sense. Um, One question I had to kind of follow up is you mentioned something where, like you said, the the spaniel rage uh, syndrome, like you, you know from experience that, you know, it's kind of a chemical issue that you need to refer to the veterinary behaviorist. For new trainers that maybe aren't familiar with everything, you know, that chemical-wise that triggers behavior, how do they identify these situations? Um, what can they look for that they need to know, like they need to refer out to a vet? Well, I mean, the most important thing of working in aggression cases is taking complete history. Um, I spent at least an hour with during the initial consultation just going off over the dog's history. So what type of training they've done, socialization history, feeding. I mean, we go over daily routine. We go over everything because I want to know all the components that affect the behavior. Um, And of course, with any behavior, you want to understand what the antecedent is. And for some of those cases, there doesn't seem to be a clear antecedent. And that's where you have to do a lot of digging. Um, But occasionally there is no real antecedent, which is kind of the... The, the quintessential part of like idiopathic aggression is it's not really, um, it, it's not, uh, there's nothing that triggers it. It's something inside the dog where it just switches really quickly. Um, those cases are incredibly rare, but I have come across them a handful of times. Um, so I think taking that full history and really understanding the whole picture of what's going on with the dog will kind of help you determine that. Um, sometimes it's really cut and dry, like, uh, dog was abused by some people in its past. Um, it came from a bad situation and now that dog is terrified and aggressive towards, uh, strangers. So there's, there's cut and dry cases like that where it's pretty clear to figure out. But if it's like, I was relaxing with my dog on the couch and everything was going good, he was soliciting petting. And then all of a sudden there was a low growl and an air snap towards my face. Mm -hmm. Things like that are a little bit harder to figure out. It could be pain. Um, it could be fear. It could be, uh, something going on that we don't understand so those kinds of things where it's not as clear to figure out what caused the behavior those I always recommend to go through veterinary uh, behaviorist first because it might be a thyroid issue uh, it might be actually pain related it might be um, some cancer going on or something that's not and there's no outward signs so that's kind of I think history taking and trying to understand what is uh, causing the behavior is going to be your best bet of figuring that out Definitely. And uh, another follow up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Before you take on an aggression client, do you have them go to a vet just for like a physical or anything like that? Um, sometimes it depends. So I do a lot of, uh, phone work with people first. So I kind of interview them over the phone to figure out, you know, what kind of the basics of going on. Um, but I like kind of reading the people's body language, um, as well. So I like to go over a majority of that stuff in person too, because you can kind of pick up on some subtleties, um, in person that you can't really get over the phone. Um, and usually when I get there, you know, I say, when was the last vet visit? Um, if I suspect that there's some veterinary stuff going on, if like I have a recent client where we've got head sensitivity, um, where the dog, the the person goes to touch the dog's head and we get some growling, which is kind of sometimes a symptom of thyroid issues. So for that dog, you know, they had actually just gone through physical, done some blood work, um, but they didn't test specifically for thyroid. So I sent them back and said, before we do any other work, 
this needs to be ruled out first. Um, so I, even if they've had a recent veterinary visit, um, it doesn't always mean that they've tested for the right things. Right. So I kind of usually try to go over those during the initial uh, consult too, because then I can kind of see the dog myself. And it might just be the way that the person's petting the dog. Like if the dog is sleeping on its bed and you go over to it and you start patting it on the head, it's probably not going to like that as opposed to, you know, a dog that comes and puts his head in your lap and then you go to pet it and you start getting that low growling. Um, there's a little bit subtle differences between the two of those. Exactly. And um, so what if you're in an area where there's nobody to refer out to? Ooh, that is a, the hardest situation. Um, usually there's a few trainers that do um, virtual consulting. Um, I know through the IABC, there's some people that do it. I have done a few in the past. It's not my favorite thing just because... A lot of the leash skills um, that you have to do with dogs that have aggression, you need to teach those people in person because it's kind of you have to show them and then kind of coach them on it. Um, so you can do virtual consulting. It's just not the best. But I think if if the case is really severe, doing a, a virtual consultation with someone that has that background is probably going to be your best bet as opposed to trying to just wing it as an obedience trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, Chris Patchell is a really amazing veterinary behaviorist, and he does a ton of, uh, you know, Skype work and things with clients. So I definitely will refer severe cases to him too, because even though he's not super close by, um, they can get a lot of really good information from him virtually. And I mean, that, that's kind of a good idea. Um, potentially, you could work with the client uh, with the other person, you know, through the webcam. Um, exactly. You're there in person, helping them in person, but you have uh, a, a really knowledgeable expert on the other line as well. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's that's the hard part is always getting someone to pay for that, right? right. Because you're paying for <laughs> two trainers. And that's always the, you know, and veterinary behaviors cost a pretty penny for the most part. Even virtual work is, is kind of expensive. So, um, you know, if that's the case, I usually will take a hit. You know, if I need to work with a veterinary behaviorist, I'll take a hit on my, you know, rate to make sure that the client is getting what they need from both of us. Right. So, you only refer to veterinary behaviorists. What if you're really busy and someone calls you and you just like, I don't have the time. How do you determine uh, someone is qualified uh, to punt some of your aggression cases to? Uh, a lot of vetting. So the the nice thing about um, where I'm at is I have a lot of other trainers that are nearby that have really good skills. Um there is two other certified dog behavior consultants in my immediate area. Um, and I've talked to them both at length so that we're on the same page. We use the similar methods. Um, and if I start a client, I can always transfer them to them too, because, you know, we use the same methods. Uh, the wonderful thing about, you know, like science-based training is it's, we all pretty much use the same techniques. There is no, not a huge amount of variation between us. Um, but as far as the vetting goes, you know, I, I just have a lot of really good conversations conversations with these people where I, you know, we say I had this case and this, this was challenging about it, but this is how we solved the issue. Um, and just like I kind of interview my clients, I'll interview other trainers as well. And I think having those discussions and those open lines of conversation really helps everything. Cause then we all feel kind of connected on, on the same page without feeling threatened by each other. Great. And if there isn't someone local, I mean, I, I know that, uh, you know, quite a few trainers are in the middle of nowhere um, and there isn't anybody local. What do you do? Do you refer to a Skype? Do you 
you know, what's, what's sort of like that? How do you be helpful when you have no tools to be helpful? Yeah. I mean, those, those Skype trainers are usually the best, but I mean, there's a, I love working separation anxiety, um, but it's not my forte. And if there's someone that needs immediate help or something and I don't have time, uh, there's a really good trainer that's local to me that does Skype separation anxiety cases. Um, and even people, I have a family that's in other states and they've had some separation anxiety. And I've referred to this person because she can do it virtually. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that's kind of the new frontier is that, you know, Skype sessions. Uh, I think it's really helpful. I've actually coped. Uh, coached other trainers via Skype on uh, cases, you know, not with the client uh, present, like what we were just kind of talking about, but just to mm-hmm. kind of go over, these are the steps that need to happen. This is what kind of plan needs to be developed. Um, this is how we set up all of our safety management, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so even if there isn't an aggression specialist near you, if you can find someone that can do Skype consulting and then possibly find a trainer with a lot of Uh, good skills and a lot of history working with a variety of different dogs, kind of creating that partnership, I think is going to be the best bet. That's really cool. What would be a good way to ask a colleague if you could shadow them? Oh, um, so that I, I have done that a few times. Like when I first started training, I, I actually apprenticed under four different trainers, um, six months under each one. And what I, I honestly just did was I, I would send them an email and say, you know, I, I like your work and I'm curious about it and I would love to learn more. Um, I'm not going to try and steal your clients. I always preface that because I think that's kind <laughs> of the, the number one concern that all trainers have is if I teach someone else, are they just going to steal my clients? Yes. Um, and I, I always preface it as that is like, I, I'm not coming at this from an ambitious standpoint. I just want to learn so that I can help people. Um, and, uh, you know, even though I didn't take all of those skills from those other trainers that I learned, um, it was still good information. Like I, uh, two of the trainers I, I apprenticed under were aversive based. Um, so even though I didn't end up using those tools, it was still good to understand the other side of the coin. Um, right. So, you, you know, I think just being honest and saying, look, this is, you know, you have a skill set that I don't have yet. And I would love to learn how you do what you do. Um, maybe come at it from a point of flattery, right? Like, uh, <laughs> you are so amazing and you have all these awesome skills that you don't have yet. So please, you know, teach me your ways, guru. Um, I think, you know, using positive reinforcement can work in that situation <laughs> as well. Um, but I think, yeah, just being honest, because I, I think all people appreciate honesty more than anything else. Right. So you have this um, amazing skill set. Um, do you charge people to come shadow you and learn from you? And, you know, or do you allow that at your facility? Or how are you sort of integrating into training the next generation of trainers? Um, currently I don't charge for it because I am at the point of like, I just want to share this knowledge so that we can help as many people as possible. Um, I've had a few trainers come and, uh, shadow me on my actual like in-home consultations as opposed to coming to the facility. I've had a couple people come here too, but I don't usually take, um, full aggression at my home. So when it's uh, people directed aggression, I go to their home usually. And that's kind of where I want other trainers to learn the most is in the home because it is not necessarily about the dog. It's all of the other pieces that come together with the dog. So it's the people, it's the environment, it's the nutrition, it's the exercise, it's the daily routine. Um, and that's what I want other trainers to learn is to look at the entire component not or the entire picture, not just one component. 
Um, and I think that's where the, the, my job of coaching them is at is learning to take all of those factors into place and not just looking at the behavior and saying, okay, this is a behavior and this is what we want to change. Um, there's so many factors that affect everything that I don't think a lot of people realize. Um, and a lot of stuff I think is really interesting is, uh, when you change like enrichment in dogs, um, it can affect aggression. So a lot of the times, uh, like predatory aggression is a really good example. I wouldn't even say predatory aggression because that's kind of natural in all animals. Um, but predatory behavior is difficult one where it's incredibly natural for all dogs. Um, and if you give them some outlets in other ways, some enrichment things like stuffed Kongs and things like that, it can kind of take some of that excitement out of those issues. Um, so that's another like a case where e- even fear aggression. So the dog is super afraid of um, people or other dogs. When you start building their confidence in other areas, it affects the that aggressive behavior. Um, so I think that's when you have people shadowing you, I think the most important part for them to understand is that it's not just the behavior, it's everything else that, you know, takes into place. Um, as far as like charging, eventually, I, I would love to ha- create a program um, in partnership with a shelter where we train, train trainers how to work with dogs with severe issues in those environments, um, because I think those are some of the more difficult environments. Right. And um, I think there's a lot to be learned there as opposed to working on the people side first. So I, eventually that's, you know, my goal would be to create some sort of program in partnership with a shelter or a rescue where we can train um, trainers. I hate saying that, but that's really what you're doing, yeah. um, you know, in a stressful environment where it's kind of like a crash course in everything stressed out dog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, those are all our questions, uh, at least for me, right, Kat? Yeah, I, I had the, a number of questions pop up sort of like, you know, going back just a little bit that what if you have faux confidence in a train as a trainer? Oh, I know everything. I got my CCPTT. I can take aggression cases and you're in over your head. Yep. <laughs> like I, 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 I'm worried that, you know, just saying, Hey, do you have the confidence to take a case could actually sort of backfire in some situations. Yeah. Um, so is there some educational background? I mean, this isn't all just experience either. Um, or being able to pass a test, there should be some education background in aggression. Absolutely. Um, and that's uh, the, the hardest. I was just talking to Dylan, my husband, about this because it's that's kind of the wave of things that I'm seeing recently with trainers is, oh, I, I you know, finished my KPA. I, I understand the technical side of it. Um, and I think I can train everything because I have that technical background. Um, right. And it's, it is a combination of the art and the science. Um, I have met a lot of trainers that are, have excellent technical skills, but they don't have that, um, the art behind it where they can kind of see the subtleties of behavior and can anticipate what's going to come next. And the only right. way to get that is through experience. Um, and that's where it's hard because you, you want to gain that experience hands-on, but you also don't want to jeopardize the client or the dog. Um, so that's where I think that shadowing helps a lot. Um, and the technical background, I mean, the understanding operant conditioning is incredibly important, but also understanding um, the physiological side of it. So understanding, you know, what parts of the body are affected uh, with aggression, what chemicals are going on in the brain, uh, you know, when these aggressive outbursts are happening. 
um, all of that is incredibly important too. It's, it's a whole picture thing. Um, I really like the C's. Um, they have a couple of mentorship programs um, that are amazing that, you know, kind of give you a crash course into aggression and can kind of explain some of the subtleties that you might not get on your own. What, um, what so that course is that? ABC, they have a, a mentorship program. Yes, they do. Um, um, yeah, Michael, the president, I know he has one for aggression specifically. Um, and then there's, you know, the learning and principles courses. And then, of course, you know, everything Dr. Su- Susan Friedman does, <laughs> is amazing. Yes. Uh, you know, her her course, uh, I, I'm a little biased because I guess uh, Dylan is in one of her slides during the course. Yes. So that that always, uh, um, you know, makes me happy. But, you know, she has a ton of really good information at you know, doing functional assessments, um, you know, using applied behavior analysis with dogs, which is something that I don't think people really understand that the tools that we use with people and other animals work with dogs. Um, so I think having, you know, skill sets in, in different areas like that, where it's not, I don't think, um, you know, just learning about dog behavior is helpful. I think learning about behaviorism in general is going to be really helpful. Right. But then also, you know, really observing. Uh, I can't stress that enough. Like ethology is, you know, the practice of, of studying behavior without making any interpretations on it. And I think there's something to be said about using those skills, you know, go to the dog park, watch dog interactions and don't try to form any opinions on it. Just observe it and kind of learn the subtle signals that dogs give each other um, or people and then see what the outcome is. Because that's really the thing that saved me a lot during the difficult consults are I see little subtle signals in the dog and I know those signals are going to lead to something else. I can kind of anticipate the next move. And that's all 100% through kind of observing body language a lot. Um, so I can't stress enough how, how awesome it is to observe and make no judgments. And then also, of course, have the background of behavior and understanding what's going on um, and how to analyze it. But making, you know, seeing those body language in person really makes a big difference. Yeah, I really think um, just going and hanging out at a dog park uh, is a really good idea. Uh, I know I I work some of my reactivity clients on the other side of a park that has a dog park and you can hear the fights. Um, So, you know, it's like I'm there for half an hour working a reactivity client and there's been five fights. So, you know, one of my (laughs) one of my things would be like, you know, can I predict which dogs are going to fight? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I do the... that too, 100%. And, and what's always interesting to me too is seeing how the humans react to those situations. Yes. Because that yes. tells you a ton of information about how your client is going to possibly handle these situations. Um, yes. And identifying like the human emotions that affect the dog behavior is so helpful. Uh, because like I had a, a client yesterday where uh, we were working uh, in the house. The dog has a bite history with strangers coming into the home and we're working on leash skills. And I said, you know, the most important thing is you keeping that loose leash. I know you're worried about safety, but we have a muzzle in place and I know how to handle things. The most important thing for me is that if you get afraid or you notice something that scares you, please don't pull back on that leash. Right. And I said that probably 10 times and it inevitably ended up happening and the dog reacted. 
Um, yeah. So kind of understanding how the human component is going to react in those stressful situations is helpful to you as well. Um, and yeah, that dog park, man, I, <laughs> it's, Ooh, I don't take my own dogs there just because I know what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and so there's a Husky that's been there and this is sort of just a side thing, but there's a Husky that's there every single time I go and it inevitably has two or three fights there mm-hmm. and um, they don't take it out. Like, I understand, you know what I mean? Like you just got in a fight with like the sweetest little dorkiest chocolate lab and you're staying in the park. Um, anyway, it's, it, I, it's, it's that, fascinating. It's, the human <laughs> mentality with that is usually that the dogs will work it out. Yeah. Right. Yes. The dogs will yes. work it out. I don't need to be involved because dogs can, they can figure it out on their own. Like, right. You know, but it took a human to break it up. Of course. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. you are intervening and they aren't yeah. working it out and get out of the damn dog park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's, uh, my favorite thing is always when uh, I, I, at my specific dog park, I've seen people pull up, take their little dogs out of the car, uh, put them in the park and then go back into their car. just leave their puppies you know or small dogs to run amok with larger dogs in a dog park without any supervision yes i i just i will never understand that mentality (laughs) and that you know that kind of goes back to for me the most important thing is educating everybody as much as possible um, I've gotten into some really interesting discussions with aversive based trainers recently, just because I don't like conflict, but I think my job is to kind of educate, advocate, um, and to come at it from a place of love instead of, uh, you know, anger, which is really easy for us positive trainers to do because we know the ramifications of what people are doing. Um, but I try to understand that these people just don't know any better, that this is what they've been taught. They don't think that there's anything else. And the only way that we're going to change, you know, the culture of dog training in general is to educate the people promoting these other methods. Yes. Um, so education, education, education. Promote, promote, promote. <laughs> well, and, and I got to admit, you know, a little show and tell. So, you know, I working at the dog park means that sometimes dogs come in that aren't uh, being driven in. They're walking. And mm-hmm. so there was this guy with this beautiful blue pity. And uh, I'm working with a uh, reactive Bouvier. And we're walking by and I'm like, you know, really working the, the ju- look at that thing as we're walking by this pity. And using happy voice and all this stuff. And this guy's like, sit, popping the prong, sit. And oh, God. Pushing, down, pushing down on the butt. And I went, good look, let's go. And <laughs> the dog followed me right away. And I was just like, you know, the more we do that, where they see that a really big dog can be controlled with just a happy voice, yeah. the mm-hmm. better we are. Yeah. That's, that's the education part of like, you don't really need to use these methods like that saying just that of, you don't need to do this kind of sets people back. Cause they're like, you mean, I don't like, this is a big unruly animal. I have to control it through force. Right. right? Cause that's primate human behavior is I, I can control it through brute force as opposed to um, cookies. Yes. Right. <laughs> like, right. Um, but my, my favorite thing that I say to these people usually is, do you really think that we domesticated wolves through force? True. 
Yeah. There's no yeah. way we would have been mauled to death. Like there's, <laughs> there's no way we did it through the use of food. They followed us around looking for scraps. Like if we can domesticate wolves through the use of food, why can't we train dogs with it? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole, I think that's silent. a whole other podcast. Like how, how we, <clears throat> no, it's a really good idea. We need a bunch of people on to talk about uh, the talking points and, and how we get past this alpha mentality because yeah. we all have this conversation like multiple times a week <laughs> and you know the most recent one was like this you know 70 year old woman who who said to me face to face you're so alpha oh god and I went um no look I have treats yeah. uh <laughs> and we, well, we ended and up having a nice conversation about exactly why I'm not alpha and exactly why we should just do away with that term completely and she yeah. she went away thinking which was great yeah, that's but that's uh, education. Uh, I go yeah. into every single client's home basically as a mythbuster to start. I just <laughs> go down the line of this myth that you've learned from Caesar Milan, this one that you heard from your vet, this one that you heard from your neighbor, and why that they're myths and not true. Um, and it's it, it. What always amazes me is the information's out there. It's yeah. one Google search away, and it's just people don't. They don't want to learn, you know, they don't want to take the initiative to learn it themselves. So they need to hear it from someone that has a certification process, you know, behind them right. um, that can say, you know, I, I can tell you for certainty that this is what happens and this is why. Um, and, you know, like the dominance hierarchy thing that the guy that came up with it in Wolves has actually like taken it back and apologized for it. <laughs> it wasn't really accurate. So it's yeah. just, um, but yeah, we should definitely do some sort of like a YouTube video where we can all talk about it. <laughs> we can all talk about it. There's certain key phrases that I have learned that just turn that switch for a lot of people. And I wish more trainers would use it because it it kind of demystifies things and it gets them back to reality. Yeah. So yeah, I've got a whole myriad of, of wonderful quotes. So we should we should just pool our uh, debunking alpha myth stuff podcast of just sharing the myriad of uh pithy comments to get people to um drop that mentality yes i'm on board awesome yeah we'll definitely do that great all right any last questions no i'm good thank you you gave us a lot to talk to think about and, and talk about today and i know we went a little bit over but um thank you so much for taking the time to join us of course thank you always my pleasure i love your guys's information uh, thank, thank you, you. Do you love the podcast? Looking for more to grow your dog training business? Check out our website at themoderndogtrainer.net to learn more from our blog, join our Facebook group, or take a course. Ross Malcolm Boyd edits the program, but he does a lot more than that. Visit rossmalcolmboyd.com for rainbow unicorns, online music lessons, and more. Thank you for listening to the Modern Dog Trainer podcast. Don't forget, you can check out the show notes at themoderndogtrainer.net slash podcast. You can also share your thoughts and support our podcast by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time.